Hi, my name is Dr. Sarah Adams. I am a board-certified pediatrician, but I'm not your pediatrician. Feel free to use my podcast as helpful information, but in no way do I intend my podcast to replace the advice of your physician. Your physician knows you and is in the best position to provide medical advice. And welcome to Growing Up with Dr. Sarah. I found a long time ago that not only can I help pediatric patients and families by working in my office, but I can also do it through advocacy and education. I have the wonderful opportunity to work with the Ohio chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics and specifically was able to interview two very special guests due to a project through the Ohio AAP and the Center for Disease Control called Project First Line. So please listen as there are two parts to this podcast, one and two, and we're going to have heart-to-heart talk with an infectious disease specialist as well as a general pediatrician just like myself as we are on the first line trying to do our best to control infection. Now, this podcast is particularly geared towards pediatric healthcare providers, but I think that you will all find the information also very helpful. Hello, and welcome to episode two of two of the podcast series, Germs Are Everywhere, Stop Them Before They Spread. This educational podcast series is brought to you by the Ohio chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics and the Center for Disease Control Prevention's Project First Line. CDC's Project First Line provides innovative and accessible resources to all healthcare workers so that they can learn more about infection control, explore educational and training content to learn more about where germs live in healthcare setting and how to recognize the risk to spread them which, of course, is the first step in understanding when to take action to protect your patients and yourselves from infection. Infection control in healthcare is more than just about policies and procedures. It's truly an essential part of caring for and protecting patients. When you can understand and apply infection control actions consistently and confidently, every person, every action, every day, it saves lives. So today, we will be continuing our conversation with Dr. Deepa Kundan and Dr. Ava Johnson. And I'd like to welcome both. And for Dr. Deepa Mukundan, she's originally from India, and she completed her residency in pediatrics from the Medical College of Ohio, which is known as the University of Toledo College of Medicine now. And as well, she finished her fellowship in pediatric infectious disease and immunology from the University of Michigan. She is now a consultant for pediatric infectious disease at ProMedica Russell J. Abide Children's Hospital and Nationwide Children's Hospital. She serves as the Interim Vice Chair of Pediatrics, the Associate Dean of Student Affairs at UTCOM, and the Chief of the Division of Infectious Disease. Dr. Ava Johnson joins us as a Cleveland native, where she obtained her medical degree from Case Western Reserve University and completed her residency at Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital. 
She works in the Division of General Academic Pediatrics at Rainbows and is currently researching health equity with um, about Black fathers and their access to health care. She has a special interest also in nutrition and pediatric mental health. Serving as the Regional Director for Rainbow Primary Care Institute, um, she's very involved in formulating Rainbow's outpatient clinical guidelines, and she's also an assistant professor at pedi- of pediatrics at Case Western Reserve University. I'm honored to be a part of this panel discussion about Project First Line, and I'm Sarah Adams. I'm a pediatrician from Akron Children's um, Hospital here in Hudson, Ohio. I love community outre- outreach, promoting healthy lifestyles mentally and physically in children. I'm a host of my own podcast, Growing Up with Dr. Sarah, and I enjoy working with the Ohio AEP at different levels, including being a medical director for the Ohio AEP's Parenting at Mealtime and Playtime program. Well, here we go again, uh, Eva and Deepa. I'm so glad to to have you join me once again and about this very important topic on infection control and how we can keep ourselves, our patients, and our coworkers safe. It's great to be back. Thanks, Sarah. And it's been wonderful working uh, with this team. So, well, Same here. Thank you. Yeah, let's start with, at our part one series, we started with talking about some local hot topics, and we, we talked about measles. I know in my practice, we are seeing a lot of group A strep infections. So I'd love if you could share about what's coming up, you know, with this, maybe even why we're seeing this and how we can protect our families and as well as ourselves and our staff when we're seeing so much strep in the office right now. And strep seems to be everywhere these days. Um, and we're seeing, you know, typical cases of strep with sore throat, fever, but, you know, lots of kids also coming with maybe the stomach ache and you look in their throat and it's a really red throat or headache um, and fever. And, and they're not really complaining a lot about strep throat, uh, throat, but you look and there's, you know, raging pharyngitis. So, um, yes, I think lots and lots of strep. It's been our new most go-to diagnosis, I think. Yeah. Um, and from a uh, hospital perspective, yes, we are seeing a lot of invasive strep uh, that's getting admitted into the hospital. So what do I mean by invasive strep is um, complications of acute streptococcal infection can be bacteremia, can be pneumonia, um, meningitis, skin and soft tissue, osteomyelitis. So we've seen the whole gamut in this short season. Um and that's a little worrisome, although strep infections do wax and wane um, in a yearly fashion. But this time, I somehow feel that the invasive infections have been uh, more than usual. And strep infections, I'm sure, in the outpatient practices are also more than usual. And what I also see is unusual presentations. In ch- Generally, we don't... We, Predominantly, strep infections are four and older, but I'm sure in the outpatient practices, now you're seeing strep in the younger children. Um, and if you closely ask for a history, it's probably from the daycare or from our another child in the household. Um, 
many parents, I mean, strep is such a common infection. Sometimes it is dismissed as, oh, they will recover. We have to do antibiotics. That is true for the most part. But when I sort of have a skewed perception because I do see all the complicated children and strep, complicated infections of strep are very, very worrisome. And even if you treat the infection, the inflammatory response to the infection can cause a lot of uh, secondary problems. And Deepa, I think you mentioned that we're s- more providers are thinking that kids are resistant to amoxicillin really when it's not resistant to amoxicillin, it's really recurrent strep that kids get over one case of strep and then are getting another case. And, and there's families or providers thinking that's a failed therapy when it really is maybe the patient maybe didn't take the whole course or they just were got another case of strep. Correct. Uh, so you can, I mean, strep infections, when the child is on antibiotics, you treat the infection. The moment the child is off antibiotics, the child is susceptible to another infection from the outside. Uh, so exposed, you get the second infection. So these can happen in series, especially because of the high uh, group A strep load in the community. So that may seem like it's not responding to amoxicillin when that's not actually true. Um, strep has never developed resistance to amoxicillin. Uh, although in the context of shortages now for amoxicillin, we do go to the next level, which is cephalexin. And in amoxicillin allergic individuals, we do recommend the macrolides like azithromycin or clindamycin. Um, So yes, there are various choices, but still ampicillin or amoxicillin is the best drug for streptococcal infections. And again, if the child is not getting better uh, while on therapy, um, I would um, think about other infections, especially viral infections, which or complications of strep or invasive strep disease would be my um, differential at that point. And the good news for families is that you know you can use amoxicillin once a day now um, instead of twice a day for strep. Um, and um, that, that is going to make it easy for families to um, make sure their kid is compliant with it. Um, and then also um, going back to school, you can only need to be on antibiotics for 12 hours before you go back to school or work. So again, I think even though kids are getting, we're seeing a lot more strep, there are ways to easily treat it and, um, and get kids back into school um, or, or for the younger kids, we're seeing um, preschool or daycare. So what I hear you saying is it's important to for healthcare providers to remember there's a once a day dose and they don't have to wait 24 hours like in the past. But I think it's also important important to remind healthcare providers to convey that to families because it can get very confusing. Like, why am I not taking this twice a day or why am I taking so much? So remembering to communicate that to families as well. I know we have a new strep, rapid strep test in our office where the sensitivity and specificity is higher. So we no longer send a backup strep culture. And unless, of course, clinically indicated or, you know, there are certain situations. But what's interesting about that is I have, I also want to remind my patients about that too, because many, you know, in the past, we would always send a backup strep if it was negative. And so depending on what type of rapid strep, I think communicating amongst staff, amongst your patients, and just 
knowing exactly how to use the equipment and what the sensitivity and specificity is so that you comfortably feel when it's negative that you feel like it's okay. We can, we can go on and look for other causes for symptoms. And patients aren't waiting for that second follow-up call to say, yes, your confirmatory test was negative and then thinking they didn't call me. So I, I think that's a really important point, Sarah. Yeah. And from an infection control perspective, that's an important point, knowing the specificity and sensitivity of a test so that you can interpret a test very correctly. And also having a pretest probability, which means that you're doing it in the right clinical setting and not as a screening test, which is not what it's recommended for. So all of those sort of tie into it, um, you know, how you use antibiotics and also uh, how to isolate and recognize the right infections. Ava, what are you doing in your practice when it comes to diagnosis, you know, evaluation it, with group A strep and identifying you know, to help stop the spread just even amongst, you know, your staff, because we're all just as susceptible because we, we haven't seen strep in a, in a while. And now I think we're all at risk of being exposed and uh, we want to protect ourselves as well. So we are still a fully masking practice. Our, our, our hospital system still requires masking. So again, that is one thing. And we actually try to minimize still how many nurses and providers are going in. So our providers actually still do strep tests. Again, if the patient is being examined by the provider, we figure minimize the exposure um, with other staff. So they do the strep test and um, examine the patient. I know that's not the same in, in many other practices where the nurse or MA may be doing that for providers, but that's sort of how we have evolved over COVID just to try to minimize who's having contact um, with those kind of procedures. So... Right. And we also do uh, continuing to mask. I don't know for how much longer, but uh, we do. um, It is required in our setting as well. Um, But one thing I would um, have seen in practices is when you're taking a swab, it's very important in respect of what the practice is to wear a mask um, because that's a high risk situation where droplet infections can happen. So absolutely emphasize or go over the protocol for um, getting a throat swab in these settings because that's done routinely and it can be forgotten easily. Um, And that's extremely important. And strep, of course, travels uh, from patient to patient and and not an airborne infection, but a droplet infection. So proximity to the patient is uh, extremely important. So wash your hands and, of course, touching the patient, touching the secretions and uh, touching your face really also transmits the infection. So make sure you wash your hands and hand hygiene is also tied into wearing a mask. So both go together. If you, and one is not instead of the other. So make sure you do both. Um, Yeah, and in um, our practice, we normally don't do strep tests because most of these patients get it in their primary care uh, setting. And in the hospital, of course, it's a very controlled environment. So we can easily do that. Yeah. What are your thoughts about strep carriers? And especially as we kind of tie it in with antibiotic stewardship. Absolutely, yes. So we do identify a few <laughs> strep carriers. Um, 
And those are the difficult ones to really, because you need a good record uh, of symptoms. When were they tested? What test did they undergo? And is it a true positive? So once we sort through that, that takes the most time when we see these patients. Um, we also need to know the home situation because there are certain indications for treating the carrier state uh, from the perspective of who all lives at home. Are they high risk for complications related to strep? Are they immune compromised? Are they on biologics, et cetera? So we do not have to um, swab everybody at home just because one of them have strep. If others develop symptoms, it just depends on the clinical situation of that individual patient that determines whether you treat the patient alone or you treat the whole family. I don't think in the primary care setting, treating the whole family, maybe once in a, what shall I say, month or once in two months, but not a very common uh, situation. Is that correct, Eva? Yeah, I mean, I when parents will always ask, oh, my, you know, this kid is positive. I have four kids at home. Should I bring them all in tomorrow and get them tested? No, do not do that. <laughs> Unless they're sick, please do not bring them into clinic. If they start getting sick or they, again, have some underlying, you know, immune compromise issue, then that's okay. But otherwise for uh, otherwise healthy child, please keep them at home, send them back to school. You know, uh, I think Sarah, you probably see that a lot too. The families are very eager to bring the other children into you to get them tested. And that's really not indicated. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And another thing that's not indicated is taking a swab after you treat the infection. That's an absolute no as well. Um, you do not have to do it, so don't do that. And then um, parents ask us because they are they are trying to prevent the infection in other children. Um, so there is no prophylactic antibiotics for strep. It's essentially, meaning there are certain strep situations, but not for strep pharyngitis. It's essentially covering your cough, hand washing. If you need to wear a mask, yes. Separate bedroom maybe is ideal because you be, you don't want to spend eight hours with in the same room as with another person who has strep. <laughs> and of course, 12 hours only. You need only 12 hours. That's right. That's antibiotics. <laughs> and I remember, you know, when I say the old days, because I've been around for a while, it used to be, well, if they have symptoms, then give us a call. We'll, you know, I, I hate to admit it, but this was way before we were talking about antibiotic stewardship. But now I, you know, parents will call and say, well, now so-and-so has symptoms. Can I just get an antibiotic? And I know we bring them in at that situation. You know, we triage and decide if it's a patient that should come in. I'd love to hear your perspective on that because I know that's another question. And it might be something not to be judgmental because I even admitted that we used to do that. But I think that now we need to remind others that it's important because part of infection control is being very smart about how and when we give antibiotics. I agree with you, Sarah. We have to be very, very careful, and we do not treat empirically over the phone for strep or ear infections or anything. Pink eye, we will. Our nurse have a protocol to do that, but otherwise, we aren't treating any of these. And I think, I think you're right, though. I think it has evolved over time. I think, again, I might have trained around the same time you did, and there was a lot more, 
you know, telephone prescribing of antibiotics. And I think we are becoming so much more aware of um, the overuse of antibiotics and the importance of good stewardship with the resistance patterns that are developing. And with one another thing we learned from the pandemic is home testing. So hopefully there are some kits which are out there, but not yet FDA approved. So hopefully we'll have some FDA approved kits that you can test at home and then decide whether we need antibiotics or not, depending on the symptoms. Hopefully it's only symptoms, then testing, and not just testing for the sake of testing. That's right. <laughs> that is right. Absolutely. And it's interesting because even when our staff is sick, you know, with COVID, I remember in the beginning, if you were sick, how long you needed to stay home as as an employee. And then with the children, which was always a challenge because 10 days of isolation versus 14 days of quarantine, but all of that has changed now that, um, and we know, thankfully, we've learned and now can do things better. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts about, you know, we talked about group A strep and 12 hours on medication, but there's a lot of people out there that are still feeling a little unsure about when can I send my kid to school? When is it okay if maybe they just have a respiratory virus, for example? And we are learning that the kids do better when they're in school, right? And so I'd love your thoughts about that and how practices can manage those questions when they arise. I mean, I think that um, knowing what your school policy is or daycare policy is are important. You know, the AAP has very few limitations on who can be in, out of school or who should be out of school. So fever and not feeling well, you know, severe diarrhea, those kind of things. But many times schools may, or daycares I find have much more restrictive policies. So um, understanding, working with the families, understand what their school or daycare policies are. Generally, I say 24 fever, again, strep, we talked about 12 hours, um, a diarrhea where the kid, you know, can't reasonably sit down for a class period, um, those kind of things kids should be at home for, vomiting, um, you know, that is a concern for infectious vomiting, stay home. Um, but I think the AAP really has very few hard and fast rules on mandatory um, stay at home. Um, we think about head lice and um, ringworm, that those, you can stay at school the end of the day. You don't need to be sent home immediately like some kids are. And then you begin treatment. And if you begin treatment at night, you can go back to school the next day. So again, really trying to get kids back in school safely. Again, we don't want to be a night is for spreading infection to other children, but uh, for most things, um, they can be safely returned to school once the kid is feeling better. Deepa, I don't know if you have other thoughts to add to that. Yeah, school-age children, it may be a little easier because they um, are potty trained um, and they can tell you when they're not feeling well or they do. Whereas the kids who go to daycare, especially the less than two-year-olds um, who are in diapers and if their stool is not contained within a diaper or you have to change, change the diapers, then you have to be very careful about hand hygiene or have them stay at home uh, so that you don't till the diarrhea is under control and can be contained within the diaper. So um, also two-year-olds or less can spread viral infections really fast, especially the upper respiratory infections. <laughs> so at least they shouldn't be drooling or, you know, having a runny nose before they go back to school, uh, in addition to not having a fever. 
So I would say, I mean, like you said, the AAP does not have hard and fast rules except for highly contagious diseases like chickenpox. Even those, once those lesions are entirely crusted, you're good. Um, <clears throat> for the most part, use your clinical judgment and um, that would be the best way to um, send them back to school or um, take care. Um, otherwise, you know, if the child has diarrhea, you do need to know for sure when, if their diarrhea is not getting controlled, whether it is because of some other infections which are unusual and which need uh, treatment, which means a visit to your primary care physician <laughs> to get diagnosed before you get back to school. Yeah. Well, I want to. But I think we could talk. Oh, I, go ahead. I was going to say that this goes sort of sideways back to like antibiotic stewardship and yeah. thinking about how we're using antibiotics. And sometimes we're seeing diarrhea because kids have been treated on multiple antibiotics. And I think, again, sort of bringing back to the importance of infection control, antibiotic stewardship is so, so, so critical with that. Um, I know that in our I, th I think, Sarah, you were saying that there are alerts on your EMR when you're prescribing for prescribing antibiotics for strep. Um, having, that's a wonderful way to, um, you know, encourage antibiotic stewardship. Smaller practices may not have those alerts on their EMRs. So thinking through how you can make sure that you're treating infections with the most effective antibiotics and making sure you use a good steward at um, my system, we um, developed clinical protocols about Five years ago for strep, sinusitis, um, otitis media, um, pneumonia, and we found that providers actually improved their rates of first-line prescribing just by putting those protocols out there and providers becoming better aware of what the first-line agents were. And then we developed a scorecard for providers quarterly looking at their antibiotics prescribing first-line rates and really to sort of show um, we could improve um, antibiotic um, stewardship by um, making sure we're getting the first line agents right. So I do think, uh, sorry to bring it back full circle to, to um, antibiotics, but I do think that is an important piece of making sure that we use antibiotics appropriately, that we reserve antibiotics for the kids who need them so that when we do have outbreaks in the future, um, we haven't run through our antibiotics that are very, very highly successful in, in treating appropriate infections. Absolutely. And uh, I fully agree with you. I mean, going back to why we use antibiotics and why we should, when shouldn't be, judicious use is extremely important. Of course, one of the reasons is antibiotic resistance. Another one would be C. diff, um, which I have seen in children. And relatively common, after, of course, after antibiotic use or recurrent antibiotics. And um, what another piece of information, I mean, which has helped me. Another uh, intervention that has really truly helped me is patient education. Um, when I have a patient with C. diff, I clearly tell them that this came because of this child being on antibiotics, educating them about why antibiotics cause C. diff, and also educating them about, you know, if you're going to the emergency room for any reason, or if you're going to your primary care physician and they're considering starting you on antibiotics, just alert them that you you do have C. diff and do we really need this antibiotic? So just giving them, just like you're alert in Epic, this would be the parent alerting you, telling, you know, this is an issue which might have, I said, throw me under the bus, don't worry about it. <laughs> but what's most important is you need to um, 
I mean, have the best care. So some as we do prescribe, again, patient records may not be complete. So have, having the patient advocate for themselves would also be a very good approach uh, for I mean, antibiotic use. Yeah. And thankfully, I find patients are less asking for antibiotics like they maybe were 10 or 15 years ago. I find that maybe we've actually sort of move the needle a little bit with this one um, as far as um, patients being aware that antibiotics are not always the best um, choice. And I think, so I think hopefully we are becoming better stewards. I don't know if Sarah, if you've seen that in your practice too, but I, I used to find parents were very, very pushing much more for antibiotics. And I find if I tell them, you know, this is really not, antibiotics are not going to be useful in this case, I, I find I'm getting much less pushback than I used to. I would agree. I think they're almost relieved in many cases because they, they're they just learning and, and like Deepa said, educating and closing that loop, you know, by telling patients, you know, to remind them to talk to their primary care about a complication that they'd had with a previous antibiotic. It's just closed loop communication, right? And so I think that's excellent and something we always have to think about because also by exercising stewardship, we're also helping with that, the the fact that we're, it's so out of stock and that will be available for the patients that truly need it. Correct. With the shortages that we see with antibiotics, especially the older ones, um, it is sometimes hard to, you know, when you really need it, you don't find it. Mm-hmm. And now with the amoxicillin shortage, you have to go to the next level, which is cephalexin, which again um, may become not so useful in MSSA infections because you will drive resistance on that uh, direction to MRSA. Also, tracking data and tracking use of antibiotics within the clinic would be an excellent way of, and giving feedback to physicians would be an excellent way of also um, you know, having some accountability and improving the quality of prescription uh, of antibiotics. And it does take a lot of education for ourselves. We have to keep up with the data, but also educating our families as well. And um, because in this day and age, we just want a quick fix and get better and get on with our lives. But we have to take pause sometimes and let the body heal the way that it's meant to, right? Right. And being in the front lines, I find that is also one of the real tough decisions. Do I a few things? Do I send this patient home or do I admit the patient home? Patient, or do I start antibiotics or do I not start antibiotics? You really have such difficult questions to answer. Um, right when you see the patients. And I uh, hats off to that um, because when by the time the patient comes to see me or is hospitalized, you sort of have answers for most of what is needed. Um, so hats off to you. It, it is hard. Thanks, Deepa. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> it is hard though because then you're, of course, by the time they come to you, you're thinking, Oh, you know, we all, and parents do the same thing. Should I have started this earlier? Should I have done this? But you just yes. take it one patient at a time and, yep. uh, and we're all just doing our best. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd like to close um, like we did in part one, which I want to remind anybody that's listening that this series about Project First Line 
in conjunction with the Ohio AAP and the CDC, is a two-part podcast. So I encourage you, if this is, if you're listening for the first time on part two, to go back and listen to part one as we talk about other topics such as measles and respiratory illnesses and vaccines and how to protect ourselves and our patients. But before we end, I would like to ask both of our amazing um, doctors that joined me today to just any final thoughts, um, comments that you'd like to make before we wrap things up. I would say um, antibiotics stewardship is extremely important to stop the spread of resistant germs. Um, and hence, people in the front lines um, do understand the importance of that, but there are also challenges um, in using them. So keep that at the conscious level, and we, I think we'll and, and I think that, again, I think I said this in the first time that this topic may seem dry, but there are, this has a really big, meaningful impact on your practice. And um, working on this project has been eye-opening to the, you know, importance, but also the, there's actually a lot of exciting things going on in infection control in the office. And um, you can find ways to engage your staff um, in helping um, make a healthier uh, workspace and uh, space for your patients. So. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is a good conversation to have. We need to be reminded of what we used to do before the pandemic, what we did during the pandemic, and now afterwards, and things that we have learned to do differently, and, and it, it's just making things better. Would you agree? Yes. Hey, we I agree with that statement. Thank yeah. you, Sarah. You're welcome, and thank you for joining me today. I know I've learned a lot, and I want to remind everybody, please go to the Ohio or the Ohio AAP will also have it, but your AAP website as well as CDC to learn more about Project First Line. There are some amazing resources that are available. You know, what we're talking about in keeping yourself and your your staff and our patients safe. I don't want you to think of, oh my gosh, this is just another thing. Well, Project First Line will make it easy for you. And as um, Dr. Johnson said, even fun. And remember that we're all here just to develop and protect our patients, ourselves, and our coworkers. And we really want to emphasize the importance in primary care in infection control. Thanks for listening to another episode of Growing Up with Dr. Sarah. If you enjoyed this episode and think the information shared here today could benefit someone else, take a screenshot of the episode and post to your Instagram story. Make sure you tag us at Growing Up With Dr. Sarah so we can spread the word about the show and continue to grow in our mission to support as many parents and families as possible. Hey, if you're interested in being a guest on the show or would like to suggest a topic, please visit www growingupwithdrsarah.com slash contact. Thanks again for spending time with us today. Stay tuned for a brand new episode next week as we continue to grow up together.